Wow, that was perfect. Can we sing that every time I get up to, just before I get up to talk, for, you know, throughout this series in Genesis 1 through 11? Wouldn't that be great? <clears throat> Except I'm not left with a voice after that. Hey, I want to mention just a couple of books that you may consult. The New Answers Book 1, this is by Ken Ham, and there's also a New Answers Book 2. And this answers everything. I mean, all, well, you know what I mean. It's an exaggeration to make a point. There's a lot of questions that you have that Ken Ham will answer. I don't know if it was in his book or not, but I, I may have been in here that I read Dinosaurs Crave Doggy Bone, you know, Milk Bone Doggy Treats. So everything you need. Uh, little, little factoid that I was not aware of. A second book, because you have questions, and I don't have time to answer all the questions. Lee Strobel's The Case for a Creator. Excellent. Another good book. Uh, easy to read. It will really help you to see what the evidence of the created universe has to say about the precision, the majesty, the genius, and really, that it's created. And so I think you will enjoy that, and I mentioned that to you too. Those are a couple of, I think, books that you would find accessible and very, very helpful. Sunday, last Sunday, I tried to create a couple of contexts, so to speak, starting points, just to give us uh, a little uh, mutual perspective by which to start reading the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, I mentioned the contemporary context or perspective, and that is of atheism. Not everyone is an atheist, but many are, and and so much of the chatter, so much of what we hear, really comes from an atheistic starting point, and that is that the world was uncreated, that we can't really call it created, we have to call it uncreated because there is no God. Now, many scientists do conclude that creation argues for a creator. And again, uh, you can pick up Strobel's book and get a, a good idea of that. But science, and this is a, something I wanted to emphasize last week, science cannot tell us the Creator's identity and purpose. And so I talked about revelation, and Genesis is revelation. This kind of sets up the language that you may or may not have heard of what sometimes theologians call general revelation and special revelation. Romans 1.20, we read it earlier, 20 and 21, where the majesty of the creation tells us things about the Creator, about our God. But it doesn't give us His identity and His purpose for creation. That's special revelation. That's where Genesis comes in. I even like to think of it as redemptive revelation. Because God would not reveal His identity if He didn't want to be known. And God would not reveal His purpose if it didn't involve us. And so there's a redemptive element to all special revelation, that which really is revealed to us by God. And we illustrated that last week with the illustration of Stonehenge and a text, something that would indicate the identity and purpose of the builders, just to cite an example. The other thing, the other perspective that we talked about briefly last week was the ancient and polytheistic. Atheistic, no God. Polytheistic, many gods. And the ancients, I ex explained, were not atheists. The many gods of ancient creation's myths were illustrated last Sunday. Uh, there are striking contrasts, and I just wanted to sum those up for you very quickly. One, 
God is uncreated and separate from his creation. Very distinctive when you read Genesis, the revelation of God, it is a picture, a, an expression of a self-existent and eternal God who's separate from his creation. A second thing, God, the God of Scripture has no myth. There are no stories about any events in his life connected with the creation and in the in the uh, eighth, in the polytheistic creation myths of the of the ancients. Um, we learn stories about the deities. There's nothing like that in Scripture. And third, God creates unopposed and by decree. He's alone, and He creates by decree, by fiat. And a, a, an additional thought, then, this becomes very important. You see, the creation of people, the creation of humankind, in God's revelation in Genesis, is not an afterthought. It's not an accident. Uh, that is... Very, very important, and that is something I want to emphasize this morning, is that in the genesis of our Bible, the creation of man and woman, the creation of humankind, is, a, is the goal of a highly ordered and sequential series of preparations to create the world as an, an inhabitation. A habitation for man. And so with that, let me uh, have us look at Genesis. I'd like to read. We looked at 1, verse 1 last week, but I'd like to begin with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Literally, one day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, or lamps, literally, or luminaries. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the waters teem according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. The image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Does the Creator really care about His creation? From the scientist's perspective, it's interesting because as Robin Collins, a trained physicist, uh, practical mathematics and philosopher, uh, wrote, when scientists talk about the fine-tuning of the universe, they generally refer to the extraordinary balancing of the fundamental laws and parameters of physics and the initial conditions of the universe. Our minds can't comprehend the precision of some of them. And... I should stick to what I have written here, but Penrose of Oxford, and I'm just pulling up some of the things I read even the day before yesterday, uh, talked about the precision involved in one case, it was like 1 billion with 123 zeros after it, making it a number that we couldn't even comp- comprehend. And if you were to write it out, he said it would, it would be more numerous than the number of elements in the universe or something like that. And I'm just going, wow. But Collins says the result is a universe that has just the right conditions to sustain life. The coincidences are simply too amazing to have been the result of happenstance. As Paul Davies said, the impression of design is overwhelming. And Collins says, imagine if we landed on Mars. We've sent a couple of rovers, but if if humans were actually to land on Mars and and say, look behind something that our telescopes can't see. He he says it would be like discovering a biosphere. 
and entering the biosphere, all the conditions are just right. All the knobs are set just right so that life can flourish. He said, you would presume that's by design. Another example he gave was was entering the mountains to go on a long hike and coming over a dell and seeing on the side of a mountain rocks arranged. I'll use myself as an example. It says, welcome John Venema. And to imagine that the natural phenomenon of, of rain and wind and and perhaps geological interruption of some kind that had formed those rocks to welcome my arrival. Wouldn't it be saner to imagine that someone who knows me, like a brother that I don't have, or my wife, or some friends from church, had actually gotten there ahead of me and made that introduction? He goes on to say, over the past 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that just about everything about the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. The dials are set too precisely to have been a random accident. And others even talk about our position in the expanding universe. Even this cluster of planets. Even the arrangement is precise for life. And so now, listen, in their book, The New Story of Science, Robert Agros and George Stanchu sum up the inferences of the amazing confluence of coincidences that make life possible in the cosmos. Quote, A universe aiming at the production of man implies a mind directing it. Though man is not the physical center of the universe, it appears to be at the center of its purpose. That's more than just an interesting fact. more than just an interesting observation. If God cares about His creation, if we believe in a Creator and that the creation is His enterprise, and at the center of its purpose is you and me, humankind, people, that makes for some dazzling inferences and implications. You know, what's interesting to me immediately, what jumped to my mind is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm younger than you think I am, but I'm getting up there. I've been around a while. I've got some history and experience under my belt. I've lived in the United States a long time. I know what I'm hearing out there. And the chatter, the chatter, the constant chatter is the humiliation of man's place in the whole scheme of things. You are not important. You are not significant. You are an accident. This whole thing is an accident. But the fact that you're here doesn't make you any more important than a snail. Or rock moss. And the collectively, the message I'm getting is, is that I should be ashamed that I'm human. Now, I've got a lot of things to be ashamed for, and you do too. But it doesn't come by accident. It comes by my relationship with the Creator who reveals to me a moral order based on His own character. For those things, I'm really ashamed. So much so that I'm, rec- I'm, I'm able to recognize the value that He places on humanity in the cross of Jesus Christ when He sacrifices His priceless Son. In other words, my value, my worth is, it is embedded in the cross not in the creation. That's where I entered the whole thing, through Jesus Christ, not through Genesis. 
in reading Genesis, I'm beginning to understand in a way I never took the time to appreciate that in the beginning, you and I were important to God and that this whole enterprise is in effect built around the primacy of place that God has given to the creation of human life. I tell you, that has a lot to say and I don't have the time to bring out all the implications and inferences, not even a few, but that's going in a totally opposite direction than the way our world, our culture, and our society here is going. And it has a lot to say about the way we think of others. Jesus, in a sense, captured that when He said, love your enemies. No one is exempt from the love that God has for you. And that is typified in my own mind in John 3.16. But now when I read John 3.16, I immediately think, in the beginning, which is the way the Gospel of John begins, by the way. Different words, but both John 3.16 and Genesis, the beginning focus on God's precious valuation and love for human life, for you and me. Well, in verse 1, and we looked at this last week, I just want to gather up something that was said to reinforce that. And that is, is that in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And I shared with you that that is a figure of language to, to express the totality of God's creation that He created. Bereshith, in the beginning, bara, created. God created heaven and earth. He created everything. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 underscores this, where the prophet Isaiah speaking The Lord through him says, I am the Lord who has made all things. Who alone stretched out heaven. Who spread out the earth by myself. For Isaiah, all things is expressed in heaven and earth. The earth Verse 2, we're told, was formless and empty. And you notice, it says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Verse 2, and the earth. There's direction here. There's real focus. We're told the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew is tohu vavohu. Let's all say it together. <laughs> tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. Formless and void. When I hear that, I think of the uh, unveiling of a new ecologically superior automobile for vegetarians. Tohu vovahu. Coming soon to a dealer near you. Tohu vavohu, formless and void. But what is interesting here is that verse 2 begins immediately with the earth. And when we think of the earth, we think of the globe. In fact, I don't even think anymore we can get that picture out of our mind, that picture from our own astronauts of the earth as they orbit the moon or from the moon. And so when we hear the earth was formless and void, we are off the earth looking through space at this blue marble as it's often been described. But of course the ancient readers wouldn't have that perspective. And 
when you hear the word earth, you also need to hear the word land. I just want to make a footnote to your reading because the land is so important. The land is where we live. Do you know, in fact, the word Eretz, which is the word translated earth here in verse 2, Eretz, E-R-E-T-Z, Ha-Eretz, the land. There's a publication out of Israel, Ha-Eretz, the land. When you read Eretz, it can be translated earth, but it can also be translated land. And anybody who reads in the first five books or in the Old Testament knows how important land is. So I just want you to keep that in view. I'm not saying that you have to say land, but you have to realize that this is going someplace. In fact, land is a prominent theme in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In fact, when you get to chapter 12, now we're going to look at chapters 1 through 11. It's kind of like the beginning. But in the end of chapter 11, you have a genealogy in which Abraham is first mentioned. Now who's Abraham? Is he anybody important? He's the father. In fact, Paul says Abraham is the father of faith. He's the father of Israel. He's the father of faith. He's the father of everybody, Gentile and Jew. He's mentioned in a genealogy, but the first words to Abraham are in verse 1 of chapter 12. And God says to Abraham, leave your country. Leave your family. And you know what he says? He says, come to the land I will show you. So land is important. This is not come to the earth I will show you. So even here, a Hebrew reader, (laughs) God, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which includes land. Verse 2, and the earth, or and the land was tohu vavohu. Now, tohu and vavohu... Tohu is the, probably the more significant word. Vavohu hardly occurs, but about three more times. And often with tohu. Tohu, in Isaiah chapter 45, 18, a creation context, and let me read it to you. Isaiah 45, 18, for this is what the Lord says, he who created bara, the heaven, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, the land, he founded it. He did not create bara, it, the land, to be empty, tohu, but formed it to be inhabited. Now notice the juxtaposition, or if you will, the literary equation in the mind of God's writer in Scripture here. He did not create it to be uninhabited, tohu, but He created it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 focuses on the land as a place not yet inhabitable for man. Tohu vovahu, formless and void, or uninhabitable and empty. Klaus Westermann says these words, tohu Vovahu are not myth. This is a picture of God starting to fashion an inhabitable place for you and for me. That is His focus. That's the supreme intention, is to create a biosphere, (laughs) if you will. For you and me, with all of the knobs set just right, for for you and me to thrive. It sounds, I know, uh, amazingly 
as self-absorbed. But this isn't coming from you and me. This is coming from God's intention. You can also look up not only Isaiah 45.18, but Deuteronomy 32.10, where tohu is parallel to desert or uninhabitable land. Also Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. The Spirit of God causes us, when we read the Spirit of God was hovering or circulating, the word is merakefet. Merakefet or merakefet. Uh, when we were in Israel, we were with uh, Ray Vanderlaan, we were overlooking a plane, and uh, there was just a gentle breeze and a bird. I would have called it a dove, but I don't know what the you know, zoology is over there. But Ray Vanderlaan saw it. Just, it wasn't even moving its, its wings. It was just almost stationary. Just kind of ambulating a little bit. And he said, Metacafet. The Spirit of God hovers, you see, over. There's the picture. The picture is also picked up in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, of an eagle. But you see, the Spirit of God is not a bird. It's just an analogy. It helps us to see, visualize something far more profound. And I think that when the Spirit of God is, if you will, circulating or hovering, we're prepared for the action of God. God is going to do something because the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is so often associated with God's extraordinary power. Even, even the fashioning and creating of, the, of the, uh, uh, the, not the synagogue, but the tabernacle. And so here is a picture of the Spirit of God, and we're prepared for God to do something extraordinary. And I would say it's to prepare a habitation for you and for me. In verses 3 through 5, we're introduced with the words, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. In verse 5, God called the light, in Hebrew, or, or is the word light. He called the or, day, yom. The word for day is yom. Like when we say, or here it said, yom kippur, day of atonement. Okay? Yom, day. So when we read God called the light day and the darkness he called night, if God called light, Yom, why doesn't the Old Testament consistently and hereafter call the light Or? Which is what it does. I mean, everywhere you read light, it's Or. But here in verse 5, we're told that light is Yom. And thereafter, it's not called yom anymore. It's called or. Why? Because I think light is a period of time. It's a period of light. I think that when at the end of verse 5, we're told this is not the first day. It is literally one day. God is creating time in verses 3 through 5. In fact, the notion of a period of light, a period of time, is carried out if you work back from verse 5 to verse 4 and even to verse 3. That's implied. Now, we call that metonymy. Now, that's when the meaning of a word is, is extended to include associations that are very close to kind of the, the semantic heart of a word. So, like, when you say... Uh, or we read that there is an announcement from the White House. Well, the White House doesn't really issue announcements. It doesn't give us messages. Buildings don't speak. But we don't even think like that. 
Because we're already thinking the White House stands for its chief resident, the president. And so there's an, really something powerful here is that God is creating one day, evening and morning. And that is highly significant because that day, that one day, a, a, a normal one day, begins the march of time, day by day, and it introduces us to the successive preparations of God to make the land, to make the earth inhabitable for the chief of his creation. Now, I wish I had time to go into the detail of each of the days because if I did that, we would lose sight of the focus of what is happening here. Not that they aren't important, but you would get bored but God saw the light was good. A former a professor of mine wrote a commentary on Genesis, John Hartley, and he identified three functions of the, or notions or elements of the word good as they apply here. Good, God says that the light, that what is good functioned precisely as he'd purposed. Secondly, he says it contributed to the well-being of the created order. And third, it had aesthetic qualities. It was pleasing and beautiful. So when God says it's good, that at first it's good because it functions as he has purposed it. It's good because it contributes to the well-being of the created order. And I want to emphasize that point because... I think God keeps saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. Why? Because he's just admiring his own creation. Well, everything he does is good. Why is he pronouncing it as good? Everything is marching toward the, the earth as a place of habitation, an inhabitable place for you and for me. That's why it's good. Even the fact that he mentions, for example, seed-bearing trees. Well, he made a lot more trees than those. But why are these mentioned? Because then later, he is going to say, here's the fruit from those trees. The, in other words, the emphasis of the detail seems to be mounting and mounting and mounting. And what is provided and what is commented on as good has to do with the fact that God is going to create all of this, just as a scientist said, which I quoted at the outset, you are at the center of his purpose. And by the way, this is the first time, this is the first time that we read God saw. Now that's an interesting expression. See, this is all what we call an accommodation to the reader. God is, even this is an accommodation so that we can understand. The very first name in Genesis that is given to God by a human being is El Roy. R-O-I. L-E-L. God. Roy. Who sees. God who sees. Now, I know a lot of Elroys. I have a whole new appreciation for the name Elroy. Never ever, ever thought Elroy was derived from the very first name given to God in Genesis. But they do sound very similar, don't they? Elroy. Uh, Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. Hagar felt neglected. That somehow she was just an accident. That there was no place for her. No purpose for her. And she says, you are the God who sees me. In Genesis 22, that's a very familiar passage. Genesis 22 is famous to us because it is there that Abraham takes his son to the mountain and he raises a knife and God stays his hand and provides 
for the sacrifice that God asked Abraham to make. And in verse 14 of Genesis 22, Abraham says, and the way I was taught it years ago was, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. But it is really a little bit more profound than that in the sense that it is the God who will see. Provision is an implication of God seeing. God is not too big, you see. I mean, when we set our eyes on the vistas, the majesty, how sublime the universe is, God seems so big that He could not be concerned with us. Genesis says He is. The experience of people with God says He is. He will provide. He sees. And you need to personalize that. Because you and I live in a world that says, you don't matter. You just have a number. And your number is no important than the number given to every other piece of creation. But notice in verse 26, and I just to help bring out the goal, I just want to highlight some things that emphasize that God puts a premium on you and me and on the creation of humankind, human beings. Man. By the way, man, it says literally, let us make man. Adam. Adam is the word man. Here's the first thing that I want us to notice. The coverage in Genesis 1 is longer than any other, the coverage of any other day that's mentioned or any other thing created. That's striking. Secondly, only before making humans does God take counsel. He takes counsel. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Three, humans are created in the image of God. In His image. And I want to just say something more about that in, in, a, in a moment. Three of the seven occurrences of the word create, bara, are used of the creation of man. And it's interesting. The first comes in... And they mark kind of the advance of everything that's important in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Barah, verse 1. Barah, verse 21. Talking about the creation of all living, breathing things. And then the creation of man three times in verse uh, 26 and following. Another thing is that God pronounces a blessing on humans and invests them with authority over other members of the created order. See, this is so different than the other creation myths. And so different than the ordering when you start from a beginning place that says we were uncreated. And I guess a seventh point I would make is that God directly speaks to human Humankind, His creation in verses 28 and 29. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them. And then in verse 29, then God said, I give you. God actually turns over custody. And that's an awesome thing that I think, you know, I think we've, we've failed greatly in taking care of the creation. But that doesn't blur the fact that the creation includes us as the crown to which God has given us custody. And we are created in the image of God. Let me just emphasize this. The words created in the image of God are not saying that something has been added to the created person. But it is explaining what the person is. And the person is, by that wording, the person is the counterpart of God. Not, our, not the equal, 
but the counterpart. That is, we are created for communion. We are created for fellowship. That is an intrinsic part of our reason for existence. To fellowship with God. And you can see what's happening to the creation as people cease to even fathom that. And in fact, deny it. I have more that I wanted to say. I'm, I'm way out of time. But what are some of the implications? You know, it's not enough. I can't give you enough information if you're looking to become an apologist for God. If you want to try and defend God, if you want to try and defend Christianity, I can't give you enough from the pulpit to do that. You can read books such as I suggested or recommended for that. What is the purpose of this? You have to take this to heart. You have to let this just like a light that invades the darkness of the created order, you need to let this light invade your heart and if need be, invigorate your worldview and the primacy of importance that God places upon human beings, which if elevates the value of the cross of Jesus Christ and the redemption of Jesus Christ. His very value. And then the value that that means for you and me. And if sometimes you think you're just so small and insignificant and unimportant, you need to remember this. John 3.16 has new meaning for me in light of Genesis. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't enough to establish that, but it certainly broadened the parameters of my worldview. And I think it has significance. I, I know some of us, there are segments of people in our society that are strongly opposed to this viewpoint, even angry. People are called radicals when they make special interests the root of their worldview. Some are ecologists, some are teachers with pet interests, some have special political agendas. The Christian who has a biblical worldview is often stereotyped and targeted. I experienced this in the classroom myself when I was in high school, well, and particularly my first year in college as a believer. I didn't even notice it before. But don't be threatened and don't succumb to the stereotype. And don't exclude those people from God's interest in love. They're important. They don't, they don't you know, void the importance that God places on them because maybe they don't see things the way you and I see them. And so it does put teeth in the words of Jesus, who, by the way, said God knows the number of hairs on your head. Now Jesus said that. He wanted to make a point. You're valuable. He said that you're worth more than two doves that were worth about an eighth of a penny. In other words, worthless by comparison. But it's the same Jesus who says that about us, who says, love your enemies. There's a lot to ponder here. But it's all established in the beginning, in the construction of the world order as a habitation for the prize of God's creation, because that man, that woman, was created for fellowship with Him and in His image. Donald Miller was supposed to be on a radio show. He didn't know much about it, but he was going to be interviewed. As he was waiting, I guess you call it the green room, he learned that the host of the radio show had a reputation for having Christian guests on so that he could just, you know, 
land blast them and destroy them. And so Miller was thinking, well, he's got the wrong guy. I'm not, I'm not Donald Miller, the writer of Blue Like Jazz. I'm Donald Miller, the, the writer of a new cookbook. Yeah, that's it. And he realized that wasn't going to work. And when the guest ahead of him came out with tears streaming down the face, he, he didn't know what he was going to do, and they called his name, and so he marched in there, and, and the host immediately said, uh, defend Christianity. He says, I, what does that mean? I can't, I can't defend Christianity. Well, defend Jesus. He said, I don't know if I'm able to defend Jesus, but I can tell you I love Him. And he went on to say that the Creator of the universe loves you. And the man began to tear up, and he said right even over the air, he says, would you have dinner with me? I want to hear more about this. What that man came to know for the silliest of reasons, not science, not because he's a, a man who understands all things and has been convinced against God. He had a girlfriend who was a believer, and she ended the relationship because of her commitment to the Lord, and he was bitter against God. So often the issue is not science, it's the heart. That's why it begins with you and me. You stand. The difference has to be a matter of the heart. And it begins with you taking to heart that God loves you. He has a plan for you. He sent His Son to certify in the most profound and poignant ways that God loves you. If this morning you don't know that, but you would like to know more, if you'd like to take a step toward the relationship with God for which you were created, and you'd like to pray, I'm going to be here, elders, pastoral staff will be down here, any one of us would count it a very special privilege to pray with you. Maybe God's put on your heart something between you and Him. It might be on behalf of another. It might be for yourself. It might be a matter of rededication. It might be a matter of healing. Whatever it is, if you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come. We're going to sing this closing song. God bless you. Thank you for sticking with me a few extra minutes today. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.